We're starting a new series of conversations today, usually during the summer here at Gateway. It's been our habit to work through a book of the Bible, and we're going to do that this summer. That's a lot of fun, and actually this summer we're going to work our way through a couple of books. We're going to go through a couple of Old Testament books, a couple of Old Testament prophets. One is Jonah, and one is Nahum. And if you've never heard of Nahum, I bet you're not alone. Let me give you a quick overview of what we're going to do. It's going to be fun. We're going to work through the book of Jonah first. And this book gives us an opportunity to talk about some of the most epic, life-altering, and foundational themes there are. For example, we're going to discuss the sovereignty of God and how that interacts with human freedom. Do our decisions, are they really meaningful, and how does God's purposes interact with that? We're going to talk about God's concern for all people. This is going to challenge any latent racism in us, but it also will expand our view of God and our view of our fellow human beings. We're going to talk about the nature of repentance and change and how do we approach God appropriately. We're going to talk about what it means to have a relationship with God, hearing from God, literally hearing from God, and obeying Him or disobeying Him. How does all that work? And more. This is going to be fun. After we've worked our way through Jonah, we're going to look at the most disrespected book of the Bible. Actually, this will give us another opportunity to look at the Bible itself, and we'll dig in a little more then. We'll talk about the nature of the Bible. And when we deal with Nahum's message, we're going to look specifically at God's judgment. And that's going to raise all kind of interesting questions, isn't it? But today, we're going to start in a different place from where we usually do forewarned is forearmed. So I'm going to threaten to be a little boring this morning. We're going to take an academic approach. So on three, you're all going to say, no, not you, Ed. One, two, three. No, not you, Ed. Yes, it's potentially going to be a little boring today. But uh, hang with it because it's good stuff. We're going to look at the nature of the story of Jonah. Is it an historical retelling of actual events, or was it written to be a morality play, didactic fiction, a story that teaches us a lot of things about God? And how critical is it to even answer that question? So you're going to get teed up right away, right from the beginning with the introduction to the book of Jonah. We dive right into the deep end to the coolness and the weirdness of this story. So I've asked Dominique if she would to read the introduction to Jonah for us this morning. Jonah chapter 1, just verses 1 through 3. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as Dominique reads Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Father, thank you so much for your word, because that's what we believe. We believe this is your word to us, and we don't believe that any of us are here by accident. So we pray that You would speak, and Lord, we're going to do the best that we can to break open our chests so that you would massage your truth in. And Father, that's what we're talking about today, truth. So we open ourselves to you, and we ask you, we lean into your grace, we ask you to do your thing. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dominique. Okay, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Truth matters. 
especially here. And believing the truth often takes work. Truth matters. And believing the truth often takes work. All right, so Diane and I went to Polly's Island, which is a little island, island, you know, it's a marsh separating it from the land, but it's just off the coast of South Carolina, halfway between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. And while we were there this week, there was a little boy and his dad who were fishing in the surf right where we were. Usually, Diane and I would take our chairs and sit in the water and, and read, and right beside us is a little boy fishing with his dad, and at one point he's going crazy, and I thought, oh, he's picked up a tire or something, calls his dad over, his dad comes over, dad helps him, and then takes the reel from him and and pulls in the biggest fish I have ever seen brought in from a surf like that. I mean, fishing, I mean, it was really big fish. And to my shock and amazement, they take pictures with it and then throw it back, you know, catch and release. I was thinking, shoot, let's eat that thing, but anyway... A little while later, some guy comes up who's part of the family or friend or something like that, and he's having this animated conversation with the little boy, and you could tell he's talking about the fish, and at some point it looks like the guy says, you know, how big was it? And the little boy says something like that, and the man next to him says, like this, because the little boy doesn't know fish culture, yet you always exaggerate when you're a part of fish culture. That made me think of Jonah. Some of you know something about the story of Jonah. So the question we want to start with today is, is the story of Jonah, is the book of Jonah an amazing fish story or is it an amazing fish story? And how do we even approach that question? We're going to start today with an academic approach, as I said. We're we're going to line up reasons to believe the story of Jonah was an historical retelling and reasons to believe that it was written to be a morality play, an elaborate parable. We're literally going to line up reasons to believe the story of Jonah is based on actual events and reasons to believe that it is teaching fiction. Along the way, I hope you'll be encouraged to do the work of faith, and that's where we're going to end up this morning. But before we dive in, I want to talk about why. Why would we spend our time together in an academic exercise? Why would we spend our time time before God, because I believe that's where we are. Why would we spend that time asking and answering this kind of question? Let me give you three reasons why we do this. Number one, because truth matters. Honestly, our answer to the question doesn't change the way we read and apply Jonah very much. I'll explain that more as we go. But we need to face this question because truth matters, especially here. Secondly, because our faith and perhaps especially the biblical foundation of our faith, has been assaulted for almost two centuries. Honestly, the worst of that assault has come from well-meaning friends of faith. And that assault goes unabated, even today. We need to be honest about the assault, and we need to answer it. Honestly, bravely, and graciously, not defensively. We don't need to be defensive. Thirdly, we do this exercise because we have teenagers here. And we have young people here who will be exposed to alternatives other than a Christian worldview. Many of them will take a college class one day where some professor will assume that there's no room for faith. While faith is quaint, maybe even helpful at times, it's certainly not intellectually viable. And that assumption will be so deeply ingrained in what they're learning and so pervasively offered up, it ultimately becomes persuasive. Unless they have been exposed to a healthy 
robust version of faith, an honest version of faith. So that's what we intend to do today, to lay one little brick in the foundation of a robust, honest look at faith. Now, I know this kind of inquiry I heard from both companies after the first service. I know this kind of inquiry is fascinating for some of us, and for others of us, it is an absolute snooze fest. But we're going to take the time this morning anyway to answer this question for the reasons that we outline. So, you know what we're going to do? I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it here because y'all are so good looking. We're going to groupletize. Yes, that's exactly the kind of response I was looking for. Here's what groupletize means if you're visiting. You're going to turn your chairs around into a little circle of at least four, not more than six. And I'm going to give you a question to answer. Here's the deal with this question. So I'm, uh, again, forewarned is forearmed. Usually when we groupletize, we do this in part to wake us up. And I don't mean physically, although that too, but I mean spiritually. But it provides us an opportunity to connect. And those connections have been a great story. You're going to hear one day about a connection that came out of groupletizing. That's an incredible God story. But we usually ask questions that are easy to answer. Because you're going to turn and face people that you don't know that well, probably. And some of you are reticent, you're shy, you're introverted, you hate this kind of thing. Others of you are so out there, you can't wait until I shut up so you can start talking. But for those of you for whom this is harder, we usually try to answer soft, uh, throw out softball questions. So that this question is not. We're diving into the deep end. So this is a time for you to say, you know, I don't know. That's a fair answer. So before Jonathan even puts the question up and I scare you, I want you to turn into circles of at least four, not more than seven, let's say. So turn into your circles right now. Okay, here's your question, and I'm only going to give you about a minute and a half. What subject, topic, or occurrence is most prone to cause you to doubt your faith? And I've given you some options. Suffering and death, the nature of the universe, personal tragedy, your own emotional struggles, or other. Or, you know, I don't really know, which is a good way of saying, don't ever talk to me again. <laughs> so let's pause for 20 seconds while you consider your answer. Okay, so let's begin with reasons to believe that the Jonah account is an historical retelling of actual events, that it was written for that reason. Let me say that again. We're going to start with reasons to believe that the author of Jonah intended to write an historical retelling of actual events. Number one, I'm going to do these quickly. Number one, in content and form, it resembles the narratives about the prophets in the historical books of the Old Testament more even than it does the other prophetic books. In other words, it looks like history when you read it. It looks like the sections of the Old Testament that are recounting history. Now, this isn't a particularly strong point, in my opinion. Obviously, there are many who disagree, and you'll hear why in a minute, but this needs to be said. As we read it, you'll see that the story itself resembles, in many ways, Old Testament historical stories. Secondly, this point is especially true of the opening of the book, the introduction that Dominique read for us this morning. The intro strongly seems to indicate that what will follow will be an historical account, right? The intro does not read like a morality play. I like what one scholar, T.D. Alexander, said about this in his commentary on Jonah. He said, I'm going to quote, 
Quote, if the opening lines are stylistically in keeping with other historical narratives, it's only natural that the reader should treat the text as factual. However, if the reader begins by believing that these events actually took place, only to discover later, perhaps in chapter 3, that this is pure fiction, he will feel misled, if not actually deceived. And this is something which any competent author would clearly never do. In other words, Dr. Alexander believes that the author meant to write history, otherwise he would have never introduced the book the way he introduced it. Now, some Old Testament scholars have argued that we aren't given enough historical detail over the course of the whole book for it to be like history. The introduction seems historical, they might allow, but where was Jonah when God spoke to him? And where did the fish spit Jonah out, etc., etc., for many other details? But this can be said of all of the history in the Bible. In fact, of all ancient Near Eastern history, they just didn't include many details. Again, this is not a strong point, but I think it needs to be said. Okay, third reason to believe that Jonah, the author, intended it to be an historical retelling of actual events. The book has an actual historical setting. By the way, I've italicized the ones that I believe are strong points in the argument. Let me fill this in a little bit. Let's take, for example, the Old Testament book of Job. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament. You'll know the story of Job. And let's use Job as a comparison. No comment about Job right now and the nature of Job. But there are many biblical scholars who believe that Job was written to be a morality play. That there wasn't really a Job that all of these things happened to. But that the story is an elaborate parable, if you will. That it was not a recording of actual events. And if you're familiar with Job, the interesting thing about Job is the author never gives a setting. It could be anywhere, anytime. But Jonah, Jonah gives an actual setting for his story. Against this, it has been argued that Jesus' parables sometimes, his stories, sometimes have an actual setting. And they were clearly not historical retellings. For instance, the Good Samaritan, if you know that story of Jesus, Jesus says there's a man who's on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. He gives it an actual setting, and clearly that wasn't an historical event. Still for me, I believe this is a strong point. We know where and roughly when this story happened. It had a setting just like history does. Fourth, the information in the book, as far as it can be confirmed, is accurate. For example, there was a Jonah, son of Amittai, who lived during the time when Assyria was an active enemy of Israel. And there was a Nineveh, and it was the largest city of Assyria. Scholars have no idea where Tarshish was, and we'll get to that later in the story, but the rest of the places in the story are known. There were violent storms that were well documented in this part of the world. In other words, the details of the story check out. And for me, this is a strong point, and by the way, one which no one argues. Fifth reason to believe that Jonah is retelling actual events, that that's what he intended to do. Early scholarship and readership, early people who read this, assumed it was historical. In other words, the people who were closest to this story seemed to believe it was an actual account. For example, Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote in the first century AD. He used the book of Jonah as part of his Israel history. He considered it a real event. Against this, of course, we have to acknowledge it's hard to argue from silence. Here's what I mean. There could have been many early readers who thought this book was an elaborate parable, but we just don't have their writings. They didn't comment about it. Plus, there's really nothing much written about Jonah until Josephus, and he was writing at least 300 years and maybe much longer after Jonah, so he's hardly a contemporary. For me, this is not a particularly strong point. Sixth, 
Jesus seemed to believe it was a retelling of actual events. I want you to listen to what Jesus said about Jonah because he comments about Jonah and uses this as an illustration of his own life and ministry. In Luke chapter 11, beginning verse 33, verse 33, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Son of Man is his, his reference to himself. He's comparing himself to Jonah. But more, this is even more important. The Queen of the South will rise. His point is, how can you ignore what God is doing right now in my ministry? I mean, look at Jonah, and he makes this point. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. You see how he establishes equivalency, it seems to me, between Jonah and the queen of the south. And this queen of the south was a real historical figure. So it seems unlikely to me that Jesus would have set up that equivalency had he not believed that Jonah was an historical retelling. For me, this is a very strong point. Let's remember, we know that Jesus was a profound thinker and a biblical scholar. He makes that clear through his command of the content of Scripture and by the way he used it. Plus, truth was a very high value for Jesus. If he believed Jonah was an actual historical account, this is a very strong point for me. There are, of course, scholars who would suggest that no, Jesus has marshaled an illustration here, and he's not using this as an historical comparison. I don't see that. Okay, those are the reasons, some, to believe that the author intended to write an historical retelling of actual events. There was a guy who was swallowed by a whale. Okay, you no doubt notice what I have not mentioned in this whole uh, list. I haven't said a word about the big giant fish. How in the world can we believe that a fish swallowed Jonah and carried him for three days, Ed? I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's look at reasons to believe that the book of Jonah was written to be fiction that teaches lessons. An aside, here's a little commentary comment from Ed. First rule for you and I in reading the Bible and I want to speak to you as a fellow traveler, a fellow journeyer. The first rule for you in reading the Bible is to try to find out what the original author was intending. That's part of the work that you and I have to do. So I'm not right now asking whether or not you and I can or should believe that a man was swallowed by a whale. I'm asking us to investigate what we think the author intended in this story. Is he writing a piece of fiction to teach us lessons about God? Or is he giving us an historical account of actual events that give us those same lessons about God? All right, so reasons to believe that it was a fictional account designed to teach us profound things about God. Reason number one, the book does not identify its author and was almost certainly not written by Jonah because it's so thoroughly critical of Jonah throughout. When you go back and read it, you'll notice that the author is never identified. And this is true, of course. But it's also true of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's true of 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament and many other Old Testament books. In fact, often ancient Near Eastern historical texts are not attributed to any author. So Jonah's not unusual at all. This is not a strong point to me. The second one may surprise you as a point, and it may surprise you that I believe it's a strong point. 
The second point is there are too many miraculous details all falling on top of one another, one right after the other. They overwhelm the narrative. Those who make this argument say that the story is lost in all of the miraculous happenings. A giant fish swallows a man, spits him back out. A giant pagan city miraculously repents. A giant gourd grows up overnight and then dies overnight. It has to be a parable pointing to profound lessons about God. It's just one thing after another. To me, this is a strong point. When you look at the miracles of the New Testament, for instance, they usually stand as singular, incredible events. They act as signposts pointing people toward our amazing God. The way this author piles one thing on top of another in the space of 48 verses is unusual. It could be said that he's just super economical in his writing style, but it's a bit unusual. Third, the book of Jonah lacks some of the traditional hallmarks of biblical historical writing. The name and country of the king of Nineveh are not named, for instance, nor is the deity he worshipped. These kinds of things are usually noted and commented on. As a result, as one critic put it, I'm going to quote, the story is not anchored in a particular era and lacks a political dimension and religious specification that all biblical writing has. I couldn't disagree more. As I said, this is one of the consistent frustrations for the modern reader when we read any ancient texts, including the Bible. There is never enough detail. And I don't see Jonah's lack of detail too strikingly different from other Old Testament passages. To me, this is not a very strong point. Fourth, the overwhelming use of exaggeration and symbolism suggests a morality play. Just a sampling. It's a great wind, a great storm. The men feared greatly. It's a great fish, a great city that's mentioned several times as a great city. Jonah is greatly displeased, but the plant causes him great joy. Literally, everything is oversized in this book. Plus, the numbers used are almost always symbolic numbers. He was three days in the belly, and it took three days to walk across this great city, and three was one of the numbers used in Hebrew mythology to represent perfection. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes things didn't literally take three days. For instance, Jesus was in the grave three days. But if you're familiar with the New Testament accounts, the witnesses, you'll remember this. The New Testament authors take pains to explain the three days. First, there's the day of Passover. Then there's the next day they talk about. And then the third day they go and check the grave. Without question, that story reads like a literal account. To me, this is a very strong point. The book is filled with hyperbole and to a lesser degree symbolism. It reads like a larger-than-life tale. This gives me pause about the author's intention. Fifth. There are some phrases and words used in Jonah that depend heavily on Aramaic. Stay with me, I'm going to explain it. Are we asleep yet? Okay. There are phrases and words used in Jonah that depend heavily on Aramaic and not on older Hebrew. I'll try to point some of those out as we go through the text over the next few weeks. For most commentaries, this is the strongest point of all, suggesting that Jonah is not literally in a historical setting. Let me illustrate why, what this means. If I were to hand you a novel, and if I were to say to you, hey, you've got to read this novel, it's awesome, it was written in the 19th century, I think it was actually written in 1864, and it's going to rock you, this is awesome, read it. If you read that novel and you get to chapter 2, and the opening dialogue of chapter 2 says, dude, that's a completely radical idea, 
you would have the strong notion that it was probably not written in the 1850s. You might doubt that the novel was actually written in the 19th century at all. Well, this is what many scholars believe that we see at certain places in the book of Jonah. So Aramaic was the language of Assyria. You don't need to remember all of this, but just in case you're keeping score at home. Most Israelites would have learned Aramaic during the time of their captivity in Israel, after Israel had been conquered by Assyria. But this was more than 50 years after Jonah prophesied. The Israelites then would have returned back to Israel and have been at that point, many scholars believe, in a position to actually write this book, having had their own language influenced by Aramaic. Well, that would have been at least 200 years and maybe as long as 400 years after Jonah lived. The conclusion usually drawn is that he has taken an old fable that may or may not have been associated with Jonah at all. He's attached it to Jonah. The story enables him to draw out important lessons about who God is and who we are before God. And much like Jesus' parables, they suggest that this author wants to make some serious theological points and he's used a fictional story to make them. That may surprise you, but to me, this is not a strong point. I think scholars generally place far too much emphasis on how much they really know about how languages progress and, and what languages depend on what other languages in their development. Plus, we know very little about what exposure Israelites might have had to different languages throughout their region. And if Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, he would have had some familiarity with Aramaic. So it's not out of the question that his tale then would have had some Aramaic influences in it. So, reasons to believe that it was in historical retelling reasons to question whether or not maybe the author's intent was to write a piece of fiction that would give us profound lessons about who God is and who we are before God. Once again, I have not mentioned the giant fish and the gastronomical miracle. So how should we respond to this story when we read it? Given all this analysis, given the remarkable set of nature-bending events that are recorded here, how should we read this story? Again, this is to set a baseline for us for the next several weeks together. So, as we wrap up, I want to survey three typical responses. You'll recognize these responses. You employ these responses sometimes in your reading of Scripture. And I believe these responses, then I'll give a fourth one, but I believe these responses are actually examples of ineffective and potentially dangerous ways of reacting to the story of Jonah. So response number one, blah, 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 blah. I believe it because I read it in the Bible and I don't want to think any more about it. I repeat, this is an ineffective response and potentially dangerous. I would describe this as having a spiritual flu. It can look like faith, but it represents something wrong with the spiritual immune system. It may be actually denial. We should remember, when we doubt, we're in good company. David doubted, Jeremiah doubted, Thomas doubted, to name a few. But when we doubt, we're not in a good place. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to stay there any longer than necessary. We should do the work of moving beyond doubt. There's no way around it. Faith takes work, and you're going to do the work either way. 
You're either going to do the work on the back end when you feel distant from God and disconnected, or you're going to do the work on the front end when you work on your faith. We should do the work. Again, when we doubt, we're not in a good place, but denial is a much worse and more dangerous place. That means we do the work of confronting our struggles honestly. We'll have to do some work in order to build a robust faith, and there's no other choice. You can, if you choose, stay in a place of ambivalence and willful ignorance. Well, I don't really, I don't know. But that place will not serve you. It's greatly preferred. It's greatly preferred that you end up disbelieving than that you allow yourself to stay in a place of apathy. Jesus once said, I'd rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. Remember, God is asking us to love him with our whole heart, our whole mind, and all of our strength. Let's do the work. Faith is not the absence of reason. True God-honoring biblical faith involves a full-press engagement with our reason. Sentimental denial is not good enough, and it won't serve you. Response number two. Response number two is what we might call scientific rationalism, and this is a term used to describe our attempts to find a logical explanation for everything we read in the Bible. For example, some of you have heard this before, I bet. It's been suggested that when Moses parted the Red Sea, it was literally the Reed Sea, which is evidently a marshy area much further up the Nile River Basin. It's been said that at extreme low tide, one could imagine walking across it. And at maybe at an historic low tide, perhaps a whole company of people could walk across it. When the same way, I've heard the story of Jonah, I've heard, preached, the story of Jonah proved by an incident from 1891. During this incident, a sailor was supposedly swallowed by a large sperm whale and survived in its stomach for a day and a night until his fellows cut open the dead whale and extracted him alive the next morning. Awesome story, but when I've heard that sailor's story shared, it's usually not accompanied by the testimony of the wife of the captain of the ship, who in writing refuted the story and said it never happened. Listen, finding logical explanations for biblical stories can be very helpful. It can be part of the work I'm suggesting we do. It can help ground these very real stories in very real time and space. But it's dangerous. It's often pointless, and it even more often leads down blind alleys. I would describe this process as having a spiritual cold, perhaps a bad cold. It's not quite the flu, but it ain't good. At its worst... Scientific rationalism is an attempt to remove the supernatural out of the story. And you cannot remove the supernatural from the biblical account. See, we believe that Jesus died. We believe the Romans were experts at death. And the accounts of his life unilaterally agree on some details that prove that he was dead in ways that they didn't have the medical knowledge to know it. And we believe, and all of the witnesses, there's not a single witness, of course they're believers, but there's not a single witness that contradicts this story, first century witness. All of the first witnesses say, three days later, he rose from the grave and he didn't smell. That's supernatural. And there are a laundry list of reasons 
to believe it. It's a fact. Now, you may dispute the fact. You may think, I don't believe that fact. But it is a fact. And Christianity rises and falls on that fact, that supernatural, that nature-contravening fact, that incident. You can't drain the supernatural out of the story that we believe. I've told my children before, if they find the bones of Jesus one day in the ground, they can't, of course, I know that. I mean, not only because he was raised from the dead, but even if he wasn't, his bones are long gone. But if they could, if they found the bones of, listen to this, if they found the bones of Jesus in the ground, I'm no longer a Christian. I admire Jesus. I would still like to listen to his teaching, but I'm no longer a Christian. Because those first followers, they didn't admire him. They worshipped him. Because he changed everything. Something supernatural happened. That's what we believe. You can't take the supernatural out of this story. Response number three. Let's call it intractable doubt. What? How in the world could a man survive in a whale for any length of time, much less days? I don't believe it. It's just not possible. This story is clearly fiction. This response I would describe as spiritual cancer. It's very, very dangerous because of what I just said about the supernatural. But let me explain a little further here. Let me get practical about how we interact with this story. If you have trouble believing that the story of Jonah is a series of historical events because the miracles overwhelm the story. It's not written like history. Legit. Okay. Then let's extract the meaning from it that the author intended. Let's learn what the author is telling us about God and about ourselves. If you have trouble believing that the story of Jonah is a series of actual historical events because the influence of Aramaic words and phrases just sets it too far out of time and out of sequence from Jonah the prophet. Legit. I disagree, but let's extract the meaning from it that the author intended. Let's learn what the author is telling us about God and about ourselves. But if you have trouble believing that the story of Jonah is an, a series of actual historical events because God, assuming he's even there, just can't do that kind of thing, or he doesn't do it. That kind of thing doesn't happen in the real world. Tell me when the last time you heard something like that actually happen outside of this dusty old book. If that's your reasoning, I want to challenge you to do some work. Here's what I mean. I challenge you to, to spend some time doubting your doubts with the same kind of fervor and intensity with which you doubt your faith. You'll find that the things that you consider certain are far less certain than you imagine. You'll find that there's an element of faith in every proposition that we believe. And if you do the work, you'll find that the stories of this dusty old book actually hold up really, really well. That's why those of us who believe don't need to be defensive. We need to respond to others and to ourselves honestly robustly and graciously. We need to listen and defend honestly. Besides, we have our own concerns and doubts. Let's admit it. Let's still deny it. And we can admit it. You know why? And we can listen to the concerns of others openly. You know why? Because God can take it. And so can the Bible. It will stand up just fine. The fourth response 
And I believe the right one is to do the work of understanding the book's message and to believe and obey it. If you're convinced by the evidence that the book was intended by the author to be actual history, then believe it and obey its message. Plus, you have to allow this incredible story to add some color to how God actually acts with our world. If you're convinced by the evidence that this book was intended by the author to be an elaborate parable, okay, then believe it and obey its message. Plus, you must remind yourself that God is able, whenever he wants, to suspend the laws of nature. But this is not necessarily an example of that. And you do whatever work you need to do to get to this point of surrender in faith. So that's what we'll be doing this, this summer. We'll be dialing through the message of Jonah to hear, to believe, and to obey. I don't know if I said, but ultimately, I come to the conclusion that this is an historical retelling of actual events. And I think had we been there, it might have been a little less cartoonish in Sunday school than we imagine, but I think our response would have been, wow. God is incredible. Here's our assignment for the week. I want you to do two things this week, if you would. I'm just strongly encouraging all of us to do two things. One, read Jonah this week. And as you do so, think of some of the stuff that we have talked about. Secondly, I'm going to post this week a truth statement each day, Monday through Saturday, on Gateway's Facebook page. We will also try to get it on other venues. I had someone tell me they don't have Facebook, and probably several of you don't. So if you don't have Facebook, we'll, we'll try to find some other venue to, to post that on, and I'll, I'll push that out as well. I'll let you know that as well. But I'm going to post a truth statement each day, Monday through Saturday, and two-paragraph piece of scripture and a one-paragraph meditation on it. And I'm going to encourage you to use those this week to marinate on, to allow yourself to be soaked in that, because... Truth matters, especially here, and we have to work at truth. Let's pray. Lord, you are truth, and so all that we know of ourselves, we deposit this morning, and all that we know of you, we want to rest in you, and Lord, I pray especially this morning for anyone here who has never met you, has never really connected with you. And maybe for emotional reasons, or maybe intellectual reasons. I pray, Father, that something that has been said has, has stirred our heart. And God, I pray that you would move. Lord, I also pray for those of us this morning who are teetering with doubt. We're being buffeted by something we've read or something we've heard or the, the opinion of someone who was influential or who was important to us or some Discovery Channel special we've seen. And Lord, I pray that you would bolster us, not through the practice of denial, God, but that you would expose us to truth and you would show us the right next step, the venue to take, the avenue to go down to pursue uh, the truth that we seek. And Jesus, I pray that in all that we do today and from here on out, especially this summer, that you would be bragged about. 
and that we would honor you in this because we worship you this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's stand together. Thanks so much for being here. And for those of you for whom that was a snooze fest, I apologize. It'll be very different next week. It's great to have you. First time visitors, awesome. Love to meet you out there if, if you've got a few seconds. Let's sing half a song and then go home and have a Sunday. Sing, there were walls between us. Let's go to that first, first, first uh, song, huh? By the cross you came and broke them down, broke them down. There were chains around us, by your grace we are no longer bound, no longer bound. You call me out of the grave, you call me into the light. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for being here. God, we, we believe in you. We believe your word. Help our unbelief. Help us to doubt our doubts. Thank you for this message this morning. And teach us this summer as we go through this series. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you guys, thanks for being here. I hope that the rest of your day is great. Don't forget to read Jonah this week. And go in peace.